Mastermind Agent is proud to present success calls. Top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com. Hi, I'm Mike Cerrone with Mastermind Agent. This month's top agent is Mike Ferrante with Century 21 in Cleveland, Ohio. Last year, he closed 170 transactions with a total sales volume of $20 million. His average sales price was $117,000, of which 50% were buyers and 50% were sellers. He has a 26-member team, 21 realtors, part-time and full-time agents, one transaction coordinator, one listing coordinator, one virtual assistant, one field rep, and one team leader. Mike Ferrante is the team leader of the 21 Mike team. He's been an agent for eight years and sold 1,200 homes in his short career. In this call, Mike talks about being a part-time agent for the first two years, how he sold 12 homes his first year as a part-time agent, working internet lead investor buyers to get started, building his agent income to match his old job before he could burn the boats quit his job, and go full-time in real estate. How he's been raising his average sales price, getting buyer leads from his listings by recording live-action video house tours, posting them on Facebook, and boosting the posts. Why he changed his CRM and which one he picked. How he's getting 80% of his listings by repeating referrals from past clients and sphere of influence. Generating referrals by hosting social mixers and networking through BNI structuring a team of both part-time and full-time agents based on the concept of low overhead and high volume, the benefits of hosting a Realtor Night of Champions, team dynamics, compensation, profit margins, and more. First, a quick word from our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television. Need more referrals? Get a free script and simple three-part plan used by a top agent to receive and close 74 referral transactions in one year. Just go to freereferralscript.com. That's freereferralscript.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome to the call, Mike. Thank you. Thank you. Nice being with you, Mike. Hey, Mike. It's great to have you here. Mike, before we talk about what you're doing today, let's go back for a minute and talk about what you did before you got into real estate. Okay. Uh, should we go all the way back to when I was a paper boy or uh, should we talk about more, <laughs> relevant, uh, more relevant experience? You, you go back as far as you would like. <laughs> okay. So I'll start with uh, graduating from college. I, I actually did uh, undergrad and then I was lucky enough to do an MBA right here in Cleveland at Case Western Weatherhead School of Management. And I always had an interest in re- real estate-related fields. Uh, I thought I wanted to be a, a huge real estate investor, and, and I still do some investing to this day. Uh, but the way I started out back in 91 was uh, graduating from school and buying a house. So um, back then, I was buying HUD houses and bank-owned properties before it was, quote, cool. And that's what I did. Uh, uh, in addition to having a painting contracting business, I would buy about one house a year, fix them up. Sometimes I'd rent them. Sometimes I would flip them. And for a long time, I did that and always enjoyed it. And uh, did some other construction work as well for for a while there. I I had a full-time job with a construction company. 
And after that started getting a little stale, I said, you know, I should go back and get my real estate license like I always intended to and never did. And so uh, I finally did that, uh, started out as a part-time agent with a full-time job, still, of course, doing the investment properties. And then when I matched my income at the job, uh, talked it over with my wife and said, yeah, let's, let's do this. And she, she blessed the decision and I quit my job and went into real estate full-time. And that was uh, right about 2010. And so the, the, since then, I've built up the team and really got a thriving business. And I'm so glad I did what I did. How long were you a part-time agent also working a full-time job? Uh, that was about two years. So I got my license at the very end of 2008. And I would say by the end of 2010 is about when I made that decision. And in early 2011 is when I started working real estate full-time. So it took me about two years of working two jobs, essentially, to get my business to the point where I was comfortable quitting that job. Do you think that you had a, a fast start or a slow start in that very first year that you, you went in? And we're talking about that part-time year, 2008. I was pretty pleased with my start. You know, I had heard how difficult this business can be and how with any sort of sales job where you're building a portfolio of clients and trying to ramp up that it could be a slow start. I, I'll never forget my first year. I sold 12 houses my first year. Uh, now, the way I did it was I took anything that came my way. I, I feel like uh, agents coming in the business, sure, sometimes they have a vision and they say, well, I'm going to be a luxury agent or I'm going to do this or that. But I think as a new agent, if you're really serious about it, you kind of have to take whatever comes your way with the realization that, you know, okay, I, I sold a $10,000 bank-owned house in Cleveland today, but that person, that buyer, that client has friends and family and people they know. And when you serve one person it snowballs and you gain clients from that. And that's exactly what I did. So to answer your question, my first year I thought was fantastic. I used my time very efficiently because I had to, and I sold 12 houses my first year and I was quite pleased with that. Yeah, that's pretty good, especially as a, a part-time agent, 12 homes your first year. Do you recall, you said you were taking business from anywhere. Do you recall what you were doing to generate that business? And were you working more with buyers or sellers? I recall exactly. So I was working almost all buyers. I think that's an easier way to start out. It's kind of hard to walk in someone's door and say, I'm a great listing agent. I can sell your house because I have all the knowledge. It's very hard to do that. I think the only listing I had, gosh, I'm trying to remember what it was, but I'm sure it was, uh, you know, something easy, you know, some cheap house that I, that I listed, but sure. I was doing almost all buyers and because I didn't really know what I was doing, I was approached by uh, a company, I'm not even sure if they're still around, but they went under the name of ushud.com and they sold what I realized today were pretty garbage leads. Now, I still think that it was good for me at the time. Uh, I paid them about $200 a month to get all these leads uh, and a lot of them were investor type buyers. And I followed up with them like a maniac. You know, I didn't know any better. So I just said, wow, this is great. I'm getting 30 leads a month and I'm converting one or two of them into a client. And one of those is buying a house. And that's pretty much how I sold all those, those houses. Uh, and at the end of the day, like I said, it wasn't a waste of time. I hooked up with a couple great investors out of doing that who ended up buying uh, about 15, 17 houses with me. And then when they decided to unload their portfolio, they listed all of them with me. So that work on the front end, selling cheap houses 
turned into about 30 to 40 transactions with just one client that I landed from, from doing that. Were most of those buyers the first year investors? I'd say a good portion of them were. I, I did have a few uh, first time type home buyers that I really enjoyed working with and it was good experience for me. The good thing about working with first time home buyers is they don't know anything either. You know, so I'm a new agent. I really don't know the realtor business very well, but they don't know that. So I approached it with a lot of confidence. Anything that they asked me that I didn't know the answer to, uh, rather than say, well, I'm new, I don't know. I just simply said, I'll get that answer for you. And I think that everyone I worked with that first year, even though they had no idea that I was brand new, the, the reason they didn't know is because I approached it with a lot of confidence and when I didn't know something, I went and got the answer very quickly and came back to them and said, well, here's your answer. So it did seem like I knew what I was doing. And, and because of my past experience as an investor and, and uh, working on homes, I think I was able to approach the business with a lot of confidence. So you did part-time for two years. You built up, you built up your income stream to, to match your income that you're earning at the other job. And then you, you took that leap of faith and you jumped in full-time. That, that had to be a little challenging, uh, a little uh, scary, even though you'd built up that income. You know, why not just run both jobs for as long as you can and double up on that income? What, what was the, the impetus? What got you to get over that hump and jump in full-time? I love the way you put that, Mike, the leap of faith. <laughs> uh, but to, to be honest with you, and I'm not sure this is um, always the best motivator, but the job I was working while I really enjoyed it the first couple of years, I started not enjoying it as much. And I started feeling unappreciated at that job. And I started realizing that I really loved doing real estate. And so it was a very easy decision for me to make. It, it just played out that way. And when I did it, there was no doubt in my mind that it was what I wanted to do. Um, also, it's just part of my makeup. I'm a very competitive, motivated person. And I realized that at the job, I knew exactly what my income potential was. Uh, aside from some little bonuses here and there, I could work as hard as I wanted to. And there was a ceiling on my income. And when I started thinking about real estate, the harder I worked, the more I could potentially make in my own business. And that really excited me. So all those factors played together and it was an easy decision for me to make. And, you know, when you say the leap of faith, I always love the expression burning the boats. You know, if you don't give yourself an escape route, you only have one direction you can, you can go. And that is in this case was to build a successful business. I really didn't have an escape plan, a safety net. So I burned the boats and moved forward with my business. <laughs> That's fantastic. Very good. Burn the boats. All right. Well, let's do this. Let's talk about some of the, the quick stats that people want to hear about you. So uh, how long have you been in the business? I've been licensed since the very end of 2008. So since 2009, and that puts me at a little over seven years. How many homes did you sell last year? Last year, we did 170 transactions. Do you recall the sales volume on that? Oh, yeah, exactly. That was about $20 million. Do you recall how many homes you've sold in your career? It's getting pretty close to 1,200 right now. And uh, the thing is, that each year it goes up. And that's always something that I talk about and think about when I'm doing my plan for the next year. So toward the end of each year, we kind of go over these numbers 
and figure out how we're going to increase that number every year, both transactions, total volume. And one of the huge goals for me, given the history that I just told you, starting with such low priced homes, uh, is to increase our average sale price. That's been a huge goal for my team and me. Last year, we got that up to just under 120000 being our average sale price. And truly, our short-term goal here is to get that up to about 150. I know that uh, when I talk about those numbers with people in different markets, they kind of shake their heads and say, wow, that's really, you got to grind to make any money doing that. Um, but that's par for our market. You know, we're not Los Angeles or New York City where we can sell uh, 12 homes a year like I did my first year and call that a great income. You know, we, we have to grind it out with those smaller sales. Now, you mentioned that your objective is to raise your average sales price. How are you doing that? Well, largely it's generated by the types of listings that we're going after. So by comparison, my first year when I told you I pretty much would go after anything, any buyer, uh, we've made a concerted effort to really go after some higher priced listings, which will in turn generate higher priced buyers and kind of moves the whole machine in that direction. So it's just a concerted effort to go after that type of business not that we're turning away the lower price business, um, and I'm sure as we start talking about the structure of the team, we've got a bunch of different people on our team. So I still have people on my team that love that investor business. So if I've got a $50,000 um, listing in Maple Heights and we're getting buyers for that, I've got people on my team that still like working that kind of business, and they'll they'll do it. By the same token, I've got other folks on the team that, you know, we've got something in Solon right now for closer to 600000 And a gal like Fran, who's on my team, she likes that kind of business. She's good at that, so she works that. Now, you may ask, well, why, don't, why doesn't everybody just want to do the high-end stuff? Well, it just isn't what everyone's comfortable with. I've got certain people that just aren't good at that high-end stuff, and they'll go ahead and crank 25 small deals a year as opposed to someone like Fran, who might sell 10 houses a year, but that's what she's good at. You're also mentioning that you want to raise the number of units each year. Last year was 170 closings. What are you on track to close this year? We are going to be at about 225. And if you don't mind, I'd like to elaborate on that. I know some people would say, well, why not just boost that average sale price and do less volume? Isn't it less work? And yeah, that is true. But my feeling is that when you're doing a higher number of units every year, that that makes you very resistant to downturns in the market. I think that those folks that are only doing a certain type of business, one type of business, maybe high end, uh, and only doing a smaller number of transactions, when there is another downturn in the market, and there will be one, I think those are the people that'll suffer. They have to reinvent themselves in order just to stay in the business. Whereas someone like me, who's going to do over 200 deals, some high end, some low end, and some in the middle, I have a much more re resilient business model, in my opinion. You take the generalist approach. You, you diversify and spread yourself out. You mentioned you're on track to do 225 this year. You also mentioned as you get near the end of the year, you're projecting out. Have you projected out what your goal is for next year? We've just started doing that, and that number, the, the number of units is going to be uh, closer to 250. And again, we're shooting for that 150,000 average sale price. I'd really like to hit that next year. I don't think we're quite going to get there this year. Um, so those are the kind of numbers that we're talking about. How far out do you 
project or, or plan for? You're going out just one year or you, do you have a plan for where you want to be in five years or 10 years? Well, the answer to that is kind of. Uh, we definitely do one year. I do have a long-term plan, and it has really more to do with retirement and an exit strategy. My wife and I talk about how we're going to do this, and, and you know, once you build this business, it becomes a business. It's not a job anymore, so it's pretty easy to step away from it, and the business keeps on running. And that was really the goal all along was to own a business, not a job. So when we talk about our long-term plan, it really doesn't have a lot to do with sales volume or number of units or, or even number of agents on the team so much as it does, what does our participation in the business look like in five years and 10 years? So do you see yourself stepping out of the business, running a seventh level business that's operating all by itself? <laughs> Sounds like you're a Keller guy. Uh, yeah, so uh, exactly. I, I will always do something in the business, but my goal here is at some point to step out of production, which is going to be a while because I love production so much, but you're exactly right. I, I want to have the option to contribute what I want to contribute to the business. So uh, yes, you're exactly right about that. And when's your time frame for achieving that? Well, we're looking at um, being able to be totally hands-off in 10 years. And uh, in between the five and the seven-year mark is where we will begin to uh, do less in the business. I think for the next five years, we're going to continue to work very hard and contribute a lot to the business. But after that five-year mark is when we'll start scaling back. Let's step back and let everybody know where you are. Uh, you're in Highland Heights, Ohio. Where is that? Well, Highland Heights is a suburb of Cleveland, so we don't usually tell people we're from Highland Heights just because people give you that blank stare, like, what is that? Uh, we serve all of Greater Cleveland, and uh, Greater Cleveland, is, as, as I define it, is uh, three or four counties around Cleveland. Now, some people, when they talk about Greater Cleveland, they also include Akron, and if you go really far out to Youngstown, we really don't serve those areas. So in my mind, the definition of Greater Cleveland is just uh, Cuyahoga, Geauga, Lake, Summit, and part of Medina and Lorraine counties. Do you know how big the population is in that area that you're talking about? Well, as I've defined it, the population of Greater Cleveland is about two and a half million. And what's kind of interesting is that, you know, people don't think of Cleveland as an, as an enormous city. Uh, but when you talk about greater Cleveland, it really is, it really is a big population. Cleveland itself though, is right around 400,000 only, um, for a long time, people were moving out of the city into the suburbs. And I think like a lot of cities, that trend is reversing itself. We actually have more housing being developed in downtown Cleveland and people are once again, returning to the city. And it's really cool to see, uh, some of the housing and you know, condos that they're building are just really cool stuff. And we're really glad to see Cleveland having this sort of rebirth. And if I can mention uh, the sports teams, some of well, two of the three sports teams doing a little better, you know, having a uh, basketball championship and the Indians in the World Series doesn't hurt, too. <laughs> sure. Absolutely. And it brings a lot of attention to the city. Absolutely. So yeah, so two and a half million people, you mentioned you got three to four counties surrounding the, the downtown area, and you said you're working that entire market. You're covering the entire 2.5 million people. Is that correct? Exactly. And, and the way we do that is that on the listing side, 
it's pretty easy to do when you've got people and systems in place. You know, as a listing agent, you could sell a house anywhere in the state. You know, I'm licensed in Ohio. I technically could go anywhere in the state. Now, practically, it's a matter of being able to drive to the house. So I want to serve just the area I've talked about. Now, when it comes to working buyers, that's much more time intensive. So the way we've set up our team to be able to serve people as area experts is that the buyer's agents, and I hate to use that term, I'd really like to scratch that I said that because we like our agents to not just think about themselves as being buyer agents, but realtors, you know, they can, they can serve buyers, but we, they can also serve sellers. But these folks that are working primarily with buyers, they really want to work in a tighter geographic area and be that area expert. So if someone is looking for a home in Strongsville, we're not going to have an agent from Highland Heights drive to Strongsville. We actually have an agent who lives in Strongsville, who's an area expert And when we generate business and leads in that area, we're going to make sure that our area expert is handling them. Have you built your team with that in mind? Have you been picking up agents that are residing in different areas of the metro area, uh, that there are different areas around the city so that you can funnel leads to them? They're not all concentrated in one place. Have you done that intentionally or did that just happen organically? Uh, It's a combination of both, Mike. So we do take into consideration before we bring a new team member on, do we have enough business to share with them in that area? Um, But we haven't had to think too hard about it because it has happened mostly organically. So for example, our business centers on what we call the Heights area. And there's a few cities, Cleveland Heights, University Heights, um, South Euclid, Shaker Heights. And for whatever reason, a good chunk of our business centers around that area, and that's where most of our agents come from. So I think it's kind of the same way real estate works. Uh, People see your signs, they see you're selling properties, and they call you because they have a house to sell, or they call you because they want to buy a house. Well, a lot of times they're just seeing your signs and seeing that you do business in the area. In the same way, agents sometimes reach out to me and say, hey, I need to ramp my business up. How can you help me? I see you're doing a lot of business in the Heights area. So we do make a conscious effort, but by the same token, it's also happened organically in that way. Please describe your overall market. So the way that our market is right now, it's definitely trending up overall. Cleveland, I think, is like a lot of cities in that there's a lot of little nuances depending on the area. So for example, much of Cleveland proper is still kind of floundering. Uh, Prices are very stagnant, although inventory is shrinking everywhere. So when you look at Cleveland proper, a lot of the areas that are a little rougher, let's say, still you've got some challenges getting homes sold. You might be looking at 60 to 90 day market times, but there's other parts of Cleveland, whether it's downtown where the condos are moving faster than they can build them or some of the suburbs where we have huge inventory shortages and buyers are literally racing to new listings to try to get them before they go into multiple offers. And those are markets where we can actually see prices rising. Now, one of the things about uh, the Midwest in general, and Cleveland most certainly fits this description, is that it's a very stable market. Other than 2007, 2008, when prices plummeted like they did everywhere, we don't see huge drops in prices or huge appreciation. So I would say on average, we're looking at 1% to 5% per year, You know, 5% being a really big boom year in our price increases if that happens. 
Uh, but in general, very stable, and that's what has brought a lot of the investors here. The investors realize that they're not going to make money on appreciation, uh, but because the prices have been so low relative to the rents, investors from all over the world have flocked here to buy homes. Our pricing is all over the map. So Metro Cleveland, uh, literally, you can still find homes under 10000 in the rougher areas. But then we've got condos going up that are anywhere from 300000 to a million. Uh, we've got neighborhoods like Bratinall is one of the little um, sort of satellite cities of Cleveland. But really, they share a lot of services with the city. And we've got condos and homes there that are one to three million. Uh, there are suburbs like Pepper Pike, Orange. Uh, again, you've got homes ranging from a couple hundred thousand into multi-millions. Uh, so really, we just have a little bit of everything. As far as the average sale price, what I can tell you is that our brokerage average sale price is about 115 and we're just a tad above that. Let's talk about marketing and lead generation. What's your number one source of leads for your business? Well, without a doubt, most of our business comes from past clients and referrals, you know, kind of what we talk about as our sphere. And I would say, uh, gosh, 80, 90% of our business, especially when it comes to listings, comes from that. Now, the buyers, a lot of our buyers, we're generating organically from our listings. And that's really what we're aiming for. I want to stop paying the Zillow's and Trulia's and Realtor.com's of the world. You know, really what we're doing is we're subbing out that portion of our business. They've built these machines that generate buyers for us. And I want to kind of take that back. So uh, that's, that's what we're trying to do by getting all these listings and marketing them. I want to generate my own buyer lead so I don't have to pay those guys for them. But we're going to come back to that. First, let's talk about your past clients and sphere of influence. You said it's a big chunk of your business, especially on the listing side, 80 to 90% of your business. So let's jump into that. First question, how big is your database of past clients and sphere of influence? So I've got a couple different numbers to share with you. As far as past clients and sphere of influence, that number is about... 1,200. We also have a larger database that is closer to uh, 8,500, but that includes everybody. Uh, But to answer your question, we're at about 1,200 on the past clients and sphere of influence. Do you have a breakout for who's a past client versus who's a sphere of influence in that 1,200? I can give you an approximate. uh, You know, past clients were just over 1,000 with the balance being just sphere of influence. Uh, we're trying to do a better job of really breaking those folks into different categories so that we can do some more targeted marketing to them. You know, that's something that we've been working on for years, and each year we get a little better at it, though. Who goes into that database? So I, I understand past clients. That's pretty easy. You've worked with them. They've, they've done a purchase or a sale. How about on the sphere of influence? How did you build up that side? Who are the people that went in there? Well, I got to be honest with you. Like I said, this is something that I had been working on for a long time, and it really had to be me going through my list of contacts. So uh, we hired a company uh, called Home Actions. Uh, To be honest with you, though, other than them helping me put together a list, uh, I probably wouldn't recommend them for the other piece of their business, which is um, their newsletters that they send out. And I'm sure there's any number of companies that can do this for you, but we sent them kind of raw data, logins for our email accounts, for 
my iPhone uh, for our MLS. And they reached in and grabbed all these contacts for us and put them into a massive database. From there, I was able to sort out the past clients and then just kind of pick through those people and put them into different categories in our CRM and sort of label them uh, past client versus, oh, this is an attorney that I have a great relationship who has referred me business over the years. So it really, uh, the, the assembling of the big list was done by an outside company. Categorizing people is just man hours going through the list and saying, yeah, these are great, like A plus referral sources that need to be contacted on a regular basis. And we kind of follow the Buffini method of grading your database and saying, all right, if you've got this many clients, why are you going to spend too much time on your B's and C's? You really should be focusing your efforts on your A's because these are the folks that can refer you who do refer you and have the potential to refer you the kind of business that you're looking for. Now, you mentioned you have a, a CRM, you have a place that you're storing all these folks and tracking them. Uh, what kind of software are you using? We're doing two things right now. So for a lot of our mass mailing, we're using MailChimp. Uh, nothing special there. Uh, we were using as our CRM for real estate specific CRM, that is, we were using something called Tiger Leads or Tiger Paws. And we've actually transitioned or in the process of transitioning to Top Producer. You had Tiger Leads. Were you generating internet leads with Tiger Leads first and then adding other leads in there? Or was is that how you got in with Tiger Leads? Right. So I think the key to any system, you know, I think earlier I referenced people and systems. I, I think that's, that's the key in building a business. Um, again, getting away from a job and building a business, having these things that kind of operate independently of you having to push them. So this is kind of a complicated answer, but in a nutshell, what I can tell you is that, yes, we are gathering leads from all different sources. We're funneling them using some software called Five Street, and all of these are under the top producer umbrella. So Five Street helps us with the management of our leads incoming both through websites and organically just from everywhere. From there, Five Street automatically dumps them into our CRM. And like I said, for a while we were using Tiger, and Tiger Leads was another lead source, but Tiger also has a CRM built in called Tiger Paws. What we've realized is that while Tiger was adequate, we think that Top Producer is going to be even better. The nice thing about using these three products is that they're all owned by the same company, so they integrate really nicely with each other. Give us some of the other reasons why you transitioned over to Top Producer. What, what did you see as the benefit from moving from Tiger Leads to Top Producer? I think the main thing was the features, uh, as in particular, the uh, drip campaigns that are available in Top Producer. Uh, so you asked me about how I started my career. Before I knew any better, I had actually signed up with Top Producer when I was a newer agent. Well, I realized pretty quickly that I was paying for a very expensive CRM and I wasn't even using a tenth of what it could do. So I stopped using Top Producer and, and decided that I would go back to it or something similar when I really could use all the tools that were available in it. So like I said, the number one tool is this drip campaign and being able to customize drip campaigns. What my feeling is that having all these leads is great. And I think that a lot of agents kind of put the cart before the horse. They say, well, I need business, so I'm going to go buy leads. And what they do, though, is that they are getting leads 
but they're not doing a great job following up with them. And I think that having the systems in place where you're actually doing a good job converting those leads into business, that's necessary before you go spend the big dollars on paying for leads. So I've, I've kind of rambled there for a minute and I forgot what your original question is, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that's kind of the gist. Now we've gone back to top producer. Oh, I remember what it was. Now we've gone back to top producer because we are ready to really start trying to convert at a much higher percentage. Uh, the national average for conversion of internet leads is 2%. Well, that's terrible. Why am I going to pay for a bunch of leads if we're going to convert 2% of them? So our goal is to get up to 8% conversion, which sounds like a lofty goal, but we're already at about 5%. And part of the reason is that we're using software like Five Street and now Top Producer, and we're touching those prospects eight to 12 times where I think the average agent is lucky if they're touching those prospects two or three times, a phone call, maybe an email here and there, but they're doing it all manually. We're using these systems to touch these clients literally, or prospects rather, eight to 12 times. All right, so are you purchasing internet leads at this time or generating internet leads? Well, we are purchasing some, but like I said, I sure like to stop doing that at some point. Uh, we're doing that because we believe in trying everything and seeing what works. And we are having some success purchasing leads. Right now, we, we purchase some leads from Zillow and some from Realtor.com and some from Homes.com. But we're not spending thousands and thousands of dollars uh, every month. We're spending, uh, I want to say we're spending about about $2,000 a month right now on purchasing leads. That's the buyer side of your business. You're spending $2,000 a month, 24000 a year. What kind of return on investment are you getting? Are you, are you, how many closings do you get in a year from these internet leads? What kind of return on investment are you getting? Is it paying for itself? It, it's paying for itself, Mike, but I can't tell you that, that's, um, that the ROI is incredible. So, I, you know, at this point, I, don't, I, I should have a better number and, and be able to track that for you better. We haven't crunched those numbers yet. We've got them. Uh, we're tracking the source of each sale. And then as it gets closer to the end of the year, I'll be able to tell you exactly how many sales and what dollar amount we closed from them. Uh, I don't have that information available on a monthly basis, but just from looking at it, I can tell you that um, we're probably only at about uh, you know two to one as far as return on investment for internet leads. And that's pretty disappointing. Uh, I want to at least get it up to to about three to one, uh, where we're making $3 on every one we invest in that type of thing. And that's the reason for going to a system like Top Producer. Now, when I start getting excited is when we don't pay for leads, when they come in organically off of our listings through marketing that we do, and the cost of that is incredibly low. I've already got the listing. All I'm doing is having my marketing assistant do a little extra work and it's generating buyer leads. That's really exciting because the ROI on that is hundreds of times what I'm paying for it. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. So you're generating, and we're going to come back, by the way, we're going to come back to sphere of influence and your sellers, but we're on this track. Let's keep going. So you're generating buyer leads from your listings. How are you doing that? Is it just the sign calls that are coming in? Are you doing something beyond that? Oh, it's well beyond that. The sign calls are pretty minimal. Uh, again, most buyers are using the internet in their home search. I've seen numbers, you know, 92, 93% of home buyers are using the internet for their home search. So as part of the Century 21 brand, we have some pretty extensive reach on websites. 
So as part of our package with our broker, a lot of this happens automatically. So we'll take a listing and it ends up on, I've heard as many as 850 websites just through the Century 21 system. Uh, part of what we pay for in our split with our broker is their systems. And so we are funneled a constant stream of leads that come in through century21.com, through realtor.com, all these websites. Century 21 has a funnel that drops us, I want to say the last I checked, it was 30 to 40 leads just off of our listings every every month. And those are just as good or better as the internet leads that you're going to buy from the other third-party websites. So a lot of that happens through our brand. The other things that we're doing, and I could talk about this for 10 or 15 minutes, this is part of my listing presentation, because when I meet sellers and they say, oh, are you going to get us on Zillow and Trulia? I say, well, of course we are, but anyone can do that. You could list with any big broker and you end up on those websites. The question you should be asking me is what am I going to do to generate buyers for the sale of your home beyond what happens automatically? And that's when we start talking about uh, video, social media, um, you know, all those other things that, that Michelle, our marketing uh, assistant, does for us that happen outside what happens with Century 21. Mike, you mentioned this video and social media. What are you talking about there? What are you doing? Well, again, there's a lot to talk about here, but let me tell you, without a doubt, the one thing I'm most excited about, and I'm sure everyone's been hearing about how you can advertise on Facebook. And I'm sure some people have dabbled in it. We are going jumping in with both feet with Facebook advertising as, as one great example. So we get a new listing. Uh, we'll produce a video tour. That's one of the things we love to promote on our listings. And these are live action video tours, by the way. And um, I, I can talk a little more about that in depth, but let me get back to Facebook with Facebook, Facebook gathers information about everyone who uses it. And with, I think it's almost 2 billion users in the world on Facebook now, I can tell you that there's more people using Facebook than get the local paper, for example. Uh, more people on Facebook than listen to radio. So why would I waste my marketing efforts on those uh, venues when I can advertise in a venue where there's such a high percentage of the population using it and I know a whole lot more about them, or Facebook knows a whole lot more about them than any other type of advertising. So what I mean by that is, <clears throat> let's say I get uh, a half a million dollar listing in a really nice neighborhood on the east side of Cleveland here. I can now create a Facebook ad and target my audience far more precisely than I can with any other media. I can say certain age ranges, uh, different income ranges. If it's on a golf course, I can get so precise as to say, I only want to show this Facebook ad to people with an interest in golf. If it's near a lake, we can talk about fishing. Uh, you can burrow so deeply into the interests of your potential audience that you're now spending 10 20 $50 to reach a very specific audience as opposed to hundreds or thousands that is just kind of a shotgun, put it out there message that 99% of the people hearing the message don't care about it. I'm now targeting hundreds or thousands of people, but these are people who are likely very interested in the message that I'm delivering. So you're, you're really narrowing down by the interest. I assume you've done some testing on that. You mentioned 
age and income, for instance, how are you narrowing down the, uh, you know, specifically narrowing down the age and income? Let's say you have one of those upper end listings, I think in your market, you said it'd be 300,000 plus. What would you do in your targeting in Facebook to look for a buyer for that property? Well, you hit the nail on the head, Mike, when you said you're doing a lot of testing. So what we'll, we're just dealing it out. I mean, this is uncharted territory, so there really is no textbook on how to do it. What's really cool is that when you start looking at the different options that Facebook has for targeting your ads, they've done all the work for you. They will give you choices of what interests to select. So not only can you include certain interests, you can exclude certain, certain things as well. So give us an example. Pick, pick one of the properties in your head. I think, and again, I think you mentioned the $300,000 golf course home. I understand how you would select golf courses. How would you narrow the age? Are you, are you looking for a move-up buyer, and then you would think they would be older uh, income? Are you, do you are doing a calculation for how much money they'd have to make to afford the home? Are you getting that deep? Exactly. All of those things. So depending on how broad of an audience we want to try to reach, uh, we'll start adding more and more criteria. Or uh, if we see that the audience is getting too narrow, we'll eliminate some certain criteria. So the cool thing about the Facebook ads is that as you start narrowing or broadening your audience, Facebook's giving you an estimate of the number of people that you'll reach. If the estimate is 200,000, well, that's too high. You know, we're, we're looking to get those audiences usually between 1,000 and 5,000 people. So say, for example, the $300,000 golf course home. Well, someone who's playing golf could be, you know, pretty wide range of age, but we're probably looking for someone whose household income is over 100000 at at a minimum. So we'll put in an income range. And we probably aren't looking for someone who makes 800000 or a million dollars a year either because they're probably looking for 500 to million-dollar homes. Uh, likewise, if we're talking about a colonial-style home, we actually look at that too, the style of home uh, compared to the age. All the bedrooms are going to be upstairs on this colonial-style home. I'm probably not looking for re- retirees. Those people want first-floor bedrooms. They want a ranch. So based on the type of home, the location, the interests that might be pertinent around the home, that's how we start burrowing in and deciding who our target audience is for that type of advertising. And let's talk about what you're promoting out there. Are you putting up a post and then boosting it out to these audiences? Uh, Sounds like you've heard about this before. Exactly. That's what we're doing. So we will put different posts out there. And if we see one is performing exceptionally well, those are the ones that we like to boost. Uh, Sometimes we'll boost two posts and see which one is performing better. And then we'll add money to the one that's performing better. Um, not, and not only are we specifically just boosting uh, homes or, or advertising for homes, uh, we're using this type of advertising to recruit agents. We're using it to promote events. Uh, for example, we just had a uh, business mixer event, a Halloween-themed costume business mixer event, and we did some boosts on that too. So the the idea there was twofold, uh, not just to get more people to the event, but to try to get some brand awareness. Uh, Not everyone that we're marketing to is necessarily going to be selling in the next six months. 
but we want to become more of a household name so that a year or two from now, if if different people have heard our message, they'll think of us. They'll say, oh, yeah, I've heard that guy's name. They're the ones that do those really cool events and advertise them on, on Facebook. You mentioned you're doing video tours and live action. You call it live action video tours. What does that mean? What are you doing there? Well, when I look at the uh, slideshows, for example, that people call video, that's not really adding any value for the buyer. I, I think that just like eight years ago, it was a bad thing to only have one photo or only have a couple photos. I think that today's buyer craves more and more and more information. And what we found is that thanks to websites like Zillow and Trulia and Realtor.com, more information is made available to them. So they want, they continue to want more. So when I look at what a buyer is doing online, they're doing a lot of their shopping before they even get to us. And I like, I like that. I think a lot of agents say, well, what value can we provide if, the, if we're giving them everything? I think it's wonderful. I think as agents, we should embrace that and try to figure out what value we can give them. If a buyer comes to me and says, I've narrowed my home down, home search down to three homes. That's pretty exciting. In my opinion. Great. Well, let's help, let's help you make this decision and let's see what else I can do for you to make this process easy for, for you. So when a buyer's online, they're looking at pictures, of course, but they want more. So all buyers look at pictures, but they want more, especially someone who's relocating here from out of town. So you've got someone like this doctor, this gal who just graduated medical school, got hired by the Cleveland Clinic, and she was going to have very limited time to come here and actually look at homes. A buyer like that isn't always just satisfied with photos. And if they're only going to have a few hours this weekend to come look at homes, they want to narrow down their search as much as they can online before getting here. So video can help them accomplish that, either to say, yes, I want to see this home, or no, now that I've seen the video, I've ruled this out because I don't like A, B, or C. And that's good, too. You know, we don't want showings of people that don't want to buy the house. We want people who are legitimately interested who may be a buyer for the home. We want, we want good showings, not just a whole bunch of showings. So this gal uh, was moving here from Florida, as I said, and we provided her video tours whenever possible. Now, one thing I did, uh, this is a rare instance when I was working with a buyer, I would actually go and preview a couple homes for her. And in order to determine if she was interested, I would shoot a video tour of someone else's listing just to send to her. Now, of course, we do that on our listings to attract more buyers, but shooting a live video tour in this case is an example of how we're able to get a buyer interested in the house. Um, even though that agent who was a listing agent on that condo that she bought eventually didn't have a video tour, I went and created one for her so that she could feel like she had walked through this condo. A funny aside to that story, she never did actually come and see that condo that she bought eventually uh, until after it was already under contract. Based on my video of that condo, she made the offer and eventually bought it. When she did finally come here, I had my fingers crossed that she still liked it. And of course she, she did, but it's a great support to the argument that I make that, that buyers want video. They want to feel like they've walked through the house before they even call an agent to schedule an in-person tour. So you've done that for some of your buyers on an individual basis. Are you doing live action video tours of your listings and promoting them on Facebook? That's exactly right. So 
we'll do the live video tour uh, that I narrate. And again, it's helpful for me because I think that my personality, what I do comes through in the video. We promote that on Facebook. We actually are able to promote those videos on third-party websites as well. So our marketing girl puts those video tours, I think, on about half a dozen websites, and we're hoping to make that even more. But yes, we absolutely promote those videos, and I think that it's some extra value that we give to the seller, we give to the listing to create more leads and more activity, a better chance of selling the listing. Let's talk about that video itself and, and what's in the video, what people would see and how you're, you're creating it as far as are you, are you walking in the front door and you're showing them what you're seeing and you're talking into the cameras, you're walking along and they're seeing the, the rooms as you walk through the house, how long is the video, it, those kind of things. Tell us some particulars about the video itself. Well, in general, I think the videos can't be more than one to two minutes. I think that all the data shows that no matter how interesting or fantastic your video is, people start dropping off uh, pretty quickly. So uh, none of the videos we do are over two minutes, and I try to keep them to a minute to a minute and a half. As far as what is in the video, I have come up with a formula that I like, but we're always trying different things. We always want to know what's going to hold people's attention, uh, because we'll look at the analytics on YouTube, which is one of the places we put the video, and we'll see when people start dropping off. And it's interesting. Some people might watch the first 10 seconds and realize, well, I'm not interested in this. Uh, most of our videos, though, people are watching nearly to the end. And that's, when, that's one of the reasons we keep it to around that minute 20, minute 30 mark. So our videos always start out with an introduction. I think it's important to have a consistent introduction, and that's part of the branding. So mine talks about, hi, this is Mike Ferrante from Century 21 Homestar and the 21 Mike team, and I have a video tour for you today. It's 123 Main Street, and that's it. That's about a 10-second introduction, and it's on every single video tour that we do. And what's uh, kind of cool is that I do the voiceover after the video has been produced. So to answer your question, no, I'm not talking into the camera. Uh, I go there and shoot the video on my iPhone. These are not professionally produced videos, but they look pretty nice. And I shoot all the video and then I come back and I do the voiceovers in my office. I send them over to Michelle, my assistant, who produces them in a program called Videolicious. Uh, Videolicious has a deal with Century 21 where we get some cool, uh, unique branding. So we have a nice little Century 21 intro that lasts about two seconds or three seconds. And then it rolls right into the intro I just uh, spoke for you. So after that intro, we're shooting the front of the house during that and just kind of pan across the front yard. And then from there, I do little segments of video that create the sense that you've actually walked through the house. So I'll start at the front door and I'll pan across the front door and maybe go into the living room. So you feel as though you've just walked in the front door into the living room. From there, it just flows through the house in a logical fashion so that people feel like they understand the flow of the house. I usually exclude basements, and in really large houses, I don't even necessarily give them the whole house, just enough to whet their appetite and get them interested in the home, but enough that they feel like they've actually walked through it. Or the last segment of the video is usually the back of the house and the backyard, and that's where I do my outro. So it always ends with, you know, here's the back of the house, here's the backyard. For more information, go to our website, 21mike.com. So again, it's part of that branding, trying to drive traffic to our website to generate some organic leads.
Now, a quick word from our sponsor, Real GTV, real estate agent lead generation television, where top agents reveal exactly how they create consistent flows of home buyer and home seller leads into their practices every month. Need more leads? Hit the pause button right now. Open Google and search Real GTV. That's R E A L G dot TV. Now, back to the show. So, you have a call to action at the end. And your call to action is for them to go to your website to get more information. That's right. On our website, we really focus on uh, the data forms, the entry, data entry forms, where people will actually type in their info, and then we receive those as organic leads into our CRM, Five Street responds to them, and then we follow up with a phone call. Let's talk a little more about that video. We got it uh, a minute and a half. You did a great job of describing it. We got the intro. We got the walkthrough. We got the outro at the end with a, a little call to action. Are you able to walk through that home in the, the minute, minute and 20 seconds? Or are you editing and speeding up, say, the flow of the walkthrough so it makes it under time? So this has been a process. And like we've talked about a couple times, a lot of trial and error. You know, we... we do videos and uh, we look at the videos we did six months ago and we shake our heads and say, Oh my gosh, I can't believe we did them like that. And then we say, now we're doing them right. This is great. We think these are wonderful. And then six months from now, we'll shake our heads again and say, gosh, I can't believe we used to do our videos like that. So I used to walk through the house and the videos were very bouncy. Uh, They were too long. So now what I've done is um, I use when I'm on site, I just use iMovie, which is a free iPhone app, uh, to shoot video segments. And so what I will do is position myself and shoot a short three to, say, seven-second segment that gives the viewer the feeling of walking through that portion of the house. Then I stop, and I'll reposition myself in another spot instead of walking from point A to point B. So from point B, I'll do another pan, that flows logically from the first segment. So I'm really speeding that process up. And yet people still can get the feeling that they've walked from point A to point B. And iMovie does a great job of automatically uh, like fading out and fading into the next shot. I have to do virtually nothing. So you see these videos and you think, wow, Mike's pretty skillful with his editing abilities. That's not true at all. It's just the app that does most of the work. And then when Michelle takes them and puts them in Videolicious, she can shorten them up um, as needed. But honestly, she has very little to do because iMovie does most of the work on the front end. Now we we have a good idea of what that video looks like. You have the video. You're going to go over to Facebook to promote it. You upload. I assume you upload that video inside of Facebook. And then what does the ad or the advertisement actually look like, the post? Right. So we're definitely putting them on YouTube first and sharing them from YouTube to Facebook. Uh, We'll put some of them on our website. And as I said, we'll put put them on third-party websites as well. As far as the actual Facebook post, here's where we do a lot of experimentation. Um, I think that I don't really know the answer to what is the best title for a post in in Facebook. I think that uh, you just have to experiment a little bit. Uh, We try to use as many keywords, eye-catching keywords as we can. So if we have a listing that is on a golf course, you know, we may reference that. 
Uh, we have a listing right now that has an indoor pool. That's a pretty unique feature. So we're looking for some kind of hook uh, to get people to want to click on the link to watch the video. I think the most successful one we ever had, and I think you'll get a kick out of this, we had uh, a property that had two homes on one lot in an area where that wasn't common. Uh, the city was called Mentor, and it's a eastern northeast suburb of Cleveland, and it was a very uncommon property. Uh, we thought it would appeal to investors and maybe some uh, people with extended family. You know, maybe mom would live in one house and the rest of the you know kids and their kids would live in the in the larger house. So our subject line of the uh, post was buy one, get one free. And we got more hits on that than anything else. So it just goes to show you, uh, <laughs> there's really no rhyme or reason. You just have to experiment and see what gets people to click on it. Have you tested using a lot of text versus just using a little bit of text? So what do you prefer to do? What kind of text do you have in this post? We lean toward less text. I think that uh, both our personal experience and all the classes that we do references the fact that on Facebook, it's a very visual media. People like pictures, people like video. They don't want to read big blocks of text. So we're looking for short headlines that grab attention and make people want to click on our pictures or our video. So you're just saying get two for one and that's it. There's no other text in the ad or in the post. That's pretty accurate. You know, we, again, we experiment and we'll try some that maybe have a little more than that. Uh, but our experience so far has been that people aren't reading text. More text doesn't make them click. Uh, an interesting picture or an interesting view of the video. You know, you we, we actually take uh, the video on YouTube and I can't tell you how to do this. But the way I do it is I say, Michelle, please do this for me. But she'll take the video and she'll put uh, a nice scene from the video as the thumbnail view of the video. So it's usually not my face. No one wants to click on that, but it might be a nice view in the case of the pool, the house with the pool. It's a nice view of the pool. So we have a video tour of a home, and yet the main picture is a picture of a pool. Well, what the heck is that about? People seem to like to click on that video. You mentioned earlier that you're doing some split tests. You're, you're testing a couple different ads and seeing what's working the best. What kind of things are you split testing? Are you split testing that thumbnail? Are you split testing the text? Well, most recently, we split tested the business mixer. So we did one advertisement for the mixer that was just more of like a brochure. It was a, it was a picture, uh, had a pumpkin, and it had some text in it, and it said something to the effect of uh, join us for a Halloween business mixer. Uh, so that was, that was one that we tried. And then we tried another one that was actually a video invitation. I shot a invitation, just me speaking to the camera, um, please join us for our mixer. And that was about a 40-second video. And again, through the magic of Videolicious, it's not just 40 seconds of me. Michelle's able to put in different graphics so that the um, visual of the video is more appealing. 40 seconds of looking at me talking isn't very interesting, but Michelle cuts away at a couple different spots and uh, put some pictures in there, something that's a little more interesting to look at that breaks up the monotony of me talking for 40 seconds. 
in that case, we actually found that the video got a lot more clicks than the simple graphic invitation come to our mixer. When you're posting these advertisements for houses, how are people responding to you? You said one way was for them to go to the website. Where are you sending them to your website? Are you sending them to the the general website? Uh, uh, Is it a specific landing page about that property? Where are you sending them at the end of the video? In general, we're not sending them to any specific property information. Our webpage is largely devoted to those uh, data entry forms. So we're sending them almost every page that you hit on my website is going to have a place for you to type in your name, phone number, email address to get more information. So in general, it's just sort of a general page on the website. Um, But to be honest with you, we get more responses uh, directly on Facebook, for example. Uh, We'll get people that will message us and just say, wow, this house looks really cool. Can you give me more information? And then uh, we're, we're collecting more leads through that sort of message and through private messages than anything else right now. Are you also getting comments below the, the post where people are, are making a statement that they'd like to learn more? Oh, that's, that's the key. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because uh, that's one of the ways that we get our sellers involved in the marketing of their property. I think that they get a little bit excited about that because first of all, no one else in our market is really doing that. And then secondly, the more comments that you get, the the more you reach a wider audience. So let me just talk you through how that works in case you've never heard this before, but we'll, we'll produce this great video of a seller's home and we'll ask the seller to like our business page um, you know, and there's a great step alone, just having them now liking our page, they're going to see our stuff from now till whenever, and hopefully they don't ever stop liking our page. But then we say, all right, great, you've liked our page. Now we're posting your video, we'd like you to go on our page, like and share the video of your home, and uh, ask all your friends to like and share the video, and tell them, hey, trying to sell my house here, maybe you can like and share my video so we can get our house sold, so we can move to Florida or wherever it is we're trying to go. The nice thing about that is now all their friends and sometimes friends of friends see this and the buyer may or may not come from that, but now you've got dozens, if not hundreds or thousands of people exposed to this marketing effort where they're saying, wow, this is something I've never seen a realtor do. When it comes time for them to buy or sell their home, they might either remember us or say to their friend, hey, who was that realtor that did that creative marketing on Facebook? And that's the whole idea, is not only to sell the house, but also to reach a larger number of people that are essentially our sphere. Friends of a past client, that's our sphere. Let's go towards the results end of of this campaign. You've got these Facebook posts that you're putting out there and you're boosting them. You've talked about how you design them and how you you go out to the demographics you think are going to be targeted. You're getting interaction with comments and shares. How about the leads that are coming in? What kind of lead flow? What kind of sales are you seeing from this effort? How's that working? What, What kind of return are you getting on this time invested? Well, that's the nice part is that the cost of this type of marketing is almost nothing. It's a little bit of my time and a little bit of my assistant's time and a little bit of maintenance, just keeping up with checking the posts and seeing who's responded. So 
in that regard, the return is very high. In raw numbers and you know number of sales, number of dollars, it's still relatively low. We're still babies at this. You know, I'm telling you, six months ago, we laugh about how we produced our videos and how we did things. We're still learning this whole thing. So it's not like uh, a big chunk of our business is coming from this, but we're getting some business from it is the point. And I think as we get better at it, it's going to become a more and more important part of our business. Uh, So unfortunately, I can't tell you exactly how many sales we've closed from Facebook off the top of my head, to use an example. But what I can tell you is that we've closed sales from Facebook, and the cost of getting that business was virtually nothing. And I assume that, as you mentioned earlier, you're using this in your listing presentation and the fact that you're on the leading edge of this technology and this promotional medium, you're probably talking to the seller about that and it's helping you close more listings, getting signed up for more listings. Absolutely, that's correct. There's virtually no one else in our market who promotes this type of thing. And while admittedly Cleveland is not known as being a cutting edge market where people are embracing new technology quickly, it's still really cool to be one of the only agents doing this type of marketing. And I know you asked specifically about ROI and and closing sales and how many leads we're generating. To me, this is not only a short-term investment, but a long-term investment. Like I said, we're now developing a brand. We're developing this presence where six months from now, 12 months from now, people will remember this. And, And even if they don't remember my name, they remember that it was their friend, that sold their house. And in the back of their minds, they don't know whether or not Facebook sold their house or or a, a lead from Zillow bought their house. They just know that there's a realtor out there who's doing things differently and better than everybody else. Maybe that guy's worth talking to. Well, Mike, thank you for walking us down that path and explaining the program that you've been working on. What I'd like to do is go back to talking about your past clients and sphere of influence. It's generating a, a lot of your business. I think you said 80, 90% of your listings. You mentioned to us yeah. the, the database is 1,200. You got about 1,000 past clients, about 200 sphere of influence. You mentioned you're keeping those in top producer at this point. What I'd like to talk about now is how you're staying in front of those people over the course of a year. So what is your marketing plan to stay in front of those people over the course of the year and, and pick up that business? Well, first, let me say that we can always do it better. And right now I'm not satisfied with how we're doing that. Now, obviously I'm doing it good enough to get the business where it is today, but we're always looking to improve how we stay in front of people. The number one rule I think is staying in front of them doesn't mean asking them nonstop for referrals. I think that the key is, yeah, you mix that in, but staying in front of them is just hey, don't forget I'm here. So one of the really cool things we're doing this year, and again, this is straight from Brian Buffini, is we're doing a reverse pop by, uh, where instead of us going out to the client, popping by to see them, we're doing the pie giveaway. So we've uh, struck a deal with a local baker who makes wonderful pies, and we're going to do an evite to all our past clients, our entire sphere of influence, and say, hey, we're giving you a pie for the holidays. Just select which type of pie you'd like and stop by December 23rd at our office, and we'll be there to give you give you your pie. Uh, so that's something really cool that I'm very excited about. Uh, if you want to talk 
a few months after that, I can let you know how many referrals I get from that. But uh, <laughs> sure, even if it's, sure, even if it's one or two, uh, it's going to be well worth it. And again, the idea is not just that people say, "Oh yeah," and by the way, I I'm ready to sell my house again. It's it's for that long term impact that it makes. Uh, other little simple things too, um, we do use uh, Mailchimp, for example, to send out some mass email. Um, but I think apart from that, there's really no substitute for just checking in with people, you know, picking up the phone and calling them, you know, very old fashioned way of doing things. I, I think everyone gets bogged down in, well, what, what newsletter can I send to my sphere that's going to make them open it and then think of me next time they have a referral to pass? My feeling on that is that I don't think there is one. You know, I think the open rates on those types of emails and those types of newsletters is so low that, sure, it's better than doing nothing. Uh, but I think that the personal touch, the phone call, the creative invitation to come to an event or to come get a pie uh, is much better than any kind of canned newsletters that you're going to send people. So, Mike, just to clarify real quick, the the pie giveaway, that's something you have not done yet. You're about to do it coming up here in the in the next few weeks, but you have not done that yet. Is that correct? That is correct. That we're doing that for the first time this this year, but I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be hugely successful. You're gonna you're gonna love the results. Uh, talk to a lot of people who've done it. You're gonna really enjoy that. But let's stick to what you have done that have generated the okay. results so far. So, Mike, it sounds like you're doing a lot of uh, mass email through Mailchimp. You're doing call and check-ins. Can you tell us what the the schedule is that you've been using? Are you are you calling those people on a schedule? Are you trying to send out a, a mass email, say once a month or once a week? Are you you making those calls uh, uh, once a week, once a quarter, it, or is it just happening? when you think about it? Uh, it's a little bit of all what you just said. So our target is one mass email per month. Right now, again, we're always talking about ROI and, and you've been very incisive in asking those types of questions. MailChimp costs me $75 a month. So I figure if I send out one mass email a month and you know every, every other month or every three months, I'm getting some piece of business from that, that's an incredible return on investment. Uh, I don't believe in bombarding people with the mass emails because our goal is not to get people to unsubscribe. It's to stay in front of them. And I think that by sending some valuable mass email once per month, I think we accomplished that. Every time we send a mass email, we do get some people who unsubscribe, but I think the majority of those are the prospects that we're getting that we don't really know. They're not really part of our sphere of influence. So, so those people drop out. Um, so I guess, actually, I'm only partially ans an answering your question because the mass emails we're sending out to everyone in our database. Uh, so let me get more specific about the actual sphere uh, emails. Those are the ones that we're sending out more on a haphazard, uh, in a haphazard way when we have something relevant to share with them. So let me rephrase the sphere of influence emails. We're really waiting until we have something relevant, valuable, important to share with them rather than just putting them on a schedule and saying, okay, once a month, we're going to come up with something to send them. I would like to get a little more regimented about that, but right now that's not what we're doing. It's we're waiting for something valuable or important to share with them. When it comes down to phone calls, uh, again, I'm not as regimented as I would like to be, but I can tell you that the people who are in my sphere of influence, uh, I'm at least picking up the phone 
two times a year to talk to them. Uh, some of them much more. You know, I've got certain referral sources that I may talk to once a month, and that's because I've got something to speak with them about. For example, I have a property manager who's a great referral source, uh, and I speak to him at least once a month. And it's usually because I have something very specific to speak with him about. Either I have a referral for him, or I have a question to ask him about a property, or we're currently working on something together where a property owner has said, I'd like to sell this property. He refers them to me, and then we've got something to talk about regarding that that property. You said the the sphere of influence, you're only going to send out an email if you have something relevant, valuable, and important. What would be an example of something that you would email out to your sphere of influence? Um, Events. So, for example, our sphere of influence always gets invited to our mixers, and we have three of those per year. Uh, The last invitation I did was a video. So we created a video that told a story. And again, I think telling a story is a great way to keep people's interest. One of the people in my sphere is a commercial real estate agent. And as a result, a direct result of being at one of our mixers, he ended up with a client. Uh, He worked with that client and ended up signing an $800,000 letter of intent for the purchase of a commercial property. So I thought that was a great story to tell, and it was a direct result of attending one of our mixers, and I kind of made, I I had a little fun with it, and I said something to the effect of, I can't promise that you'll make that kind of sale from coming to our mixer, but that some business will get done, something like that. So so attending our events would be one great example of uh, an email that we would send out to our sphere. Sometimes it might just be, announcing something that has happened with the team. Uh, We'll send out uh, blasts when we reach a certain milestone, just sharing a success story. Those are two of the examples that come to mind immediately. I'm sure there are more. And if you give me a minute, I'm sure I'll think of them. And you mentioned that you make the calls as well. You're trying to contact your folks at least twice a year. What are you talking about during those calls? It can vary. For example, the property manager, I told you I'm usually talking business with him, uh, but other people, it might just be a check-in call. I tend to approach this business more from a standpoint of what can I do for you, not what can you do for me. Uh, I know that I personally am very turned off by the latter approach. Um, I would rather call people and see how they're doing, uh, see what their needs might be. And it's just a fascinating phenomenon that when your goal is to serve, that somehow that comes back to you. And I know we haven't really talked about it yet, but I'm a big believer in networking groups like uh, BNI, Business Networking International. You know, it's, it all kind of works into my sphere and my re- re- referral sources. Um, I've been a member of that networking group, and their motto is giver's gain. You don't join a networking group. If, if you don't join a networking group with the intent of what can I, what can I take from this group more how can I be a contributing member of this group? It's amazing the rewards that you uh, reap from it. I think I know the answer then to the next question, but I'm going to ask anyway, when you're talking to your sphere of influence, past clients on the phone or in person, do you ask for referrals directly? Sometimes yes. Uh, So I guess the the answer is about half the time I do, uh, but it usually comes up uh, organically in the conversation. Uh, I think people know why you're calling when you call, even though I'm saying, hey, how can I help you? 
uh, people know that, yeah, Mike's a nice guy and I consider him a friend or at least a close acquaintance. But at the end of the day, people know you're keeping in touch with them for a reason. So it's not a sin to bring up the fact that maybe there is uh, something that you might have for me in your back pocket. And that would be a referral of a friend, neighbor, family member. Uh, So absolutely, I'm not afraid to bring it up. Uh, but it's not always me that brings it up. Oftentimes the person I'm calling will, if they have something to give. You mentioned the mixers. You're doing three of those a year. You've mentioned it's basically networking. You talked about BNI. Are you doing the, the mixers for your BNI group or are you doing the mixers for your sphere of influence and past clients? I think it's important not to separate. So while I invite everyone to the mixer, I also invite my BNI group. There's no reason we can't mix those groups up. The whole idea behind networking is that hopefully someone who comes to that event makes a new contact who's able to do some business as a result of you putting those people together. So if I can steal a quote from Brian Buffini, he says that we need to be the straw that stirs the drink. So Uh, uh, The great example I always use, apart from my commercial real estate buddy, is a landscaper. This landscaper that I give a lot of work to, every time he attends an event, he walks out of there with a new client or two. And I can guarantee you, uh, every time he's sprucing up someone's house to get ready to sell, he's out there asking, do you have a realtor? You know, why are you doing this work? And do you have a realtor? I've gotten referrals from him. Again, I can't say it's directly from attending my mixers, but again, it's that whole philosophy of giver's gain where I've given this guy work, I've given him opportunities, and in return, I'm the guy he thinks of when there's an opportunity to pass a referral. What percentage of your business is coming from the networking? Well, I I, I thought you were going to ask a different question, which is what percentage of my business comes from BNI, and I actually happen to know that number. It is about 10%, and that's just from BNI. Uh, So when you add in the other networking sources, uh, it's hard for me to give you an exact number because, to me, networking, sphere, that all overlaps. So when I tell you 80 to 90% of my listings come from my sphere, I'm including networking in that. Um, only about 10 to 20% of the, the listing business I get comes from outside sources like internet leads. Uh, literally, I'm answering the phone to get listings. I know a lot of people preach, oh, calling FISBOs and expireds. And I think that can work. But like we said earlier in the call, there's all kinds of different ways to be successful in this business. And I know agents who are hugely successful pounding the phones on FISBOs and expireds. But I can tell you, it's been at least a year since I called a FISBO or an expired. You mentioned you do the, the three mixers a year for your sphere of influence. You know, what does that look like? Are you, are you going to a restaurant? Uh, are, you gonna, are you renting out a room somewhere? Uh, how many people show up? What, is the, what do these mixers look like? Well, uh, I'm a believer that whenever you can mix a little alcohol into an event, that it, that it frees up people's, uh, you know, conversations and makes them a little more relaxed. So we're using restaurant bar type places. Uh, these places that we're using have a separate room, and we don't. And and we're looking not to spend money. You know, we don't want to spend thousands of dollars on an event. So the last one I did cost me $159. It was just this past Tuesday. Uh, we got this place near our office. It was our east side mixer, $159. I got the room, uh, pizzas, wings, 
and everyone buys their own cocktails. I don't, uh, I don't buy the alcohol at these events. And how many people were there? We had uh, 36 people plus my admins were there. Excellent. And, and did you receive any referrals from that effort? Well, this is a good one because actually I did. I, I connected with a, a guy who has a home to sell, and he also is a builder and has 18 lots, and he is about to build a spec home. So I haven't listed anything yet. It was literally just this past Tuesday. But, of course, I've already followed up with an email and a handwritten thank you note to that fella, and I'm very optimistic about that. Uh, it's very – very rarely do you have an event like this and the next day you have a listing. You know, that's not how these types of things work. Uh, we're, we're farmers, not hunters, when we do build our businesses this way. So it's really more about the long term. And the next time there's a referral opportunity, these folks thinking of us. The one that happened Tuesday, having walked out with this guy's name and phone number and having something so uh, close to being able to turn into business is truly the exception than it is the rule for me, as I said, my landscaper, he walks out of there with a job. You know, he has a job to go to next week. Uh, for I, I think in our business, this is more of a long term. Uh, you're not looking for the for the listing tomorrow. You're looking for building relationships to turn into referrals next week, next month, this year. Mike, what I'd like to do at this point is I'd like to switch gears and talk about your team. Could you describe your team? Okay, sure. So right now we have a wide variety of agents on the team, um, and I'd like to talk about that for a moment. We have, I believe it's 22 agents now, and as I said earlier, they tend to focus on certain areas. They become area experts, uh, typically centered around where they live. Um, these are agents who either are looking to do more business, and that might be why they join the team, and uh, I've got agents producing anywhere between 20 and 30 units. Those are my higher producers down to part-time agents, uh, who still maintain their licenses, uh, just work their sphere for the most part, and maybe bring in two or three deals a year. Uh, we keep our overhead very low so that having agents like that on the team doesn't hurt us. It only helps us. Uh, we spend a few hundred dollars uh, helping them with their business throughout the year. And if they bring in two or three deals, we're thrilled. So in addition to the agents, we've got a transaction coordinator who handles contract to close. We've got Michelle that I've talked about a couple times who handles things on the listing side. She's kind of a hybrid listing coordinator, marketing girl. And then I have uh, a gal that we call our team manager, who's a licensed uh, agent, and she still sells a little bit to her sphere, but her job mainly is to take as much off my plate as she can. So she'll handle a lot of the day-to-day -day, uh, things, questions from our teammates, uh, if they're working on a deal and they don't know how to proceed. Uh, if she can't figure it out, then I'm the next line of defense, typically. Um, so I think that's, oh, and then our field guy, uh, we have a guy who is a local contractor, but we consider him part of our team and he runs around puts up signs, uh, lock boxes. Um, we also make him available to our clients. Uh, we want to be full service and we don't want our clients to have to exert more effort than they have to, especially if they're out of town. So for example, here's a great example. Right now we had a showing on a house and the the showing agent said, gosh, Mike, I'm really sorry, but when we were leaving the house, the 
handrail fell off the wall. So these guys have already moved. My sellers have already moved. I told them what happened and I said, Hey, but don't worry about it. I'll send my guy there and he'll fix the handrail. Um, so he's, he's the last member of the team. And do you have a, a VA? Oh yes, I do. <laughs> Uh, so we've got a gal that we uh, found, and she's been with us now for about two and a half years. She's actually in Pakistan. And as you can imagine, most of our communication with her is through Messenger and through email. Uh, but she handles a lot of data entry and some of the more mundane, repetitive tasks so that our girls here can focus on the skilled tasks that they really need to concentrate on. Would you mind disclosing to us how you put together the compensation for your agents on your team? Um, yeah, I can kind of talk in general about it. I, I think that the I think that everyone gets kind of bogged down in the splits. That's what how everyone wants to term it is. Well, what's what's my split? What does it cost me to be on your team? Um, I really like to think about it more as uh, what are you buying? What's the value that you're getting? It's all about, and I hate to use this term. It seems like it's been kind of overused lately, but it's truly the value proposition. So just like uh, I pay my broker, um, I'm buying a commodity from him and he gets part of my commissions. Uh, It's the same deal with with teams. Uh, And I think it's important to kind of figure out what your goal is, what your mission is, what your model is. My model is low overhead, high volume, and I'm going to give generous commission splits. So I I think in general, uh, without getting into the details of what the exact splits are, we're over 50, 50, you know, so the agents who are doing the lion's share of the work running buyers around, for example, I'm going to give them the lion's share of the commission, uh, frankly, because it really doesn't cost me much to implement these systems so that they can receive these leads and follow up on them. In my opinion, in my business, the way my team started was that I had a surplus of buyers. I was literally leaving money on the table. I, I couldn't follow up with all these buyers. And I said, how can I at least get something for this value that I'm able to give someone? So my decision was to start bringing in other agents to help me follow up on the leads in exchange for their labor. Um, I would make a small piece of the pie off of it. And and that's, that's truly how we've built the team and how our uh, expense structure is set up. You said the, the lion's share, are you paying, what, 90% out? Uh, uh, what are you paying for to the buyer agent, to the, to the, you don't call them buyer agents, what do you call it, pay to the realtors? Right. So, you know, typically we're at 70%. They're, they're getting 70% on leads that we're passing them. And then do you have a different split for leads that they bring in, business they bring in on their own, that, you know, they get their referral from their own sphere? And what do you pay out on those? So we they get an extra five percent on business that they generate. I mean, I want to I want to reward them for bringing in their own sphere of business because the way teams are set up, everything has to be run through the team. So I want to reward them for creating their own business. And frankly, that's been another thing that we've been working on. I think that uh, as a teammate, I think a lot of people gravitate to a team because they're able to get handed this business. But I think to be truly successful and what I've seen with my teammates is that they have these goals. Many of them aren't hitting their goals, I think, because they've become complacent with the business that I'm handing them. I'm trying to encourage them and teach them how to work their own book of business. A lot of people say, well, Mike, aren't you just grooming them to, to leave you? And I think the answer to that is maybe, 
but if I still provide enough value to them, they won't want to leave me. So I'm rewarding them with the extra 5% for business that they generate on their own. And at the same time, if I can help them build their business bigger, it helps me. And hopefully I continue to give them enough value where they don't leave me. Well, Mike, are you profitable? (laughs) That's the idea, right? So absolutely. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing it. Uh, it, There are always bumps in the road. uh, But when I look at my bottom line every year, uh, I'm happy with uh, how we're doing. I I think you had asked me to be ready with uh, sort of an idea of a profit margin. So, So the number I came up with was just over 20%. And I think, uh, you know, the traditional models will say, well, gosh, that's not that's not that great for real estate. But again, when you look at uh, the way I've structured my team and the expenses that I have to put out, I'm pretty happy with that. Um, you know, our, our teammates get a nicer split, but I'm doing a lot of volume and not having to do a whole lot of legwork for it. So I, I'm pretty happy with that. Well, Mike, what drives you? As far as my uh it that you know and i think about this a lot and uh, and i actually struggled with this it's funny you asked that and i and i finally put it into words what what drives me what my goal is what what makes me like have that 10 year goal in mind when i can get myself out of pr- production and and frankly i think a lot of people say wow that mike he loves to work he works a lot of hours um i i really do that because my my one thing is my my free time and it's those those two words and I, I have a lovely wife. Um, we have a daughter and a dog. And the time that I relish the most is the time that I'm with them. So when you ask me what drives me, it's that it's those moments that I can spend with them. Uh, the times where I can say I'm going to step back from my business and not work for a while, go on vacation, um, spend play with the dog, uh, spend time with my family. So it's really uh, my family and my free time. Mike, why have you been so successful? I think the success that I've had has come from the consistency and the systems and, quite frankly, hard work as well. Uh, I approach my business almost like a job. Um, I don't do my laundry or you know, run personal errands during the day. I wake up every day. I start my day at the same time every day seven o'clock. I'm at my desk. I'm answering emails. I'm, I'm, uh, getting prepared for appointments later that day. I have, um, I'm organized in that I have time blocks and I do certain things at certain times of the day. And it's the same routine every day. Sure. There are things that pop up. We're, we're realtors. It can't be exactly the same every day. Last night I had an appointment at 7:30 PM because that's the only time the client could, could meet. Uh, but it's the consistency and the systems. And then, of course, the people that you put in place, getting the right people on the bus and the wrong people off to help you implement those systems. So, again, it's all about building a business, not owning a job. And that's what we've done here. Mike, if you were going to advise a brand new agent just getting in the business, what would you tell them to do first? I would tell them to work on their schedule, block their time in a manner that works for them. And that doesn't mean figure out how many hours a day you can work necessarily. What I recommend for them is that they first take their schedule, their time blocks, and put in the most important things. Maybe it's their family. You know, maybe it's uh, appointments with kids or, um, you know, maybe it's vacations. And then from there, 
start blocking off the time that you're going to devote to real estate. And during those times, you protect those time blocks and do what's on your schedule. If you have lead generation on Wednesday morning from 8 to 10 a.m., by gosh, that's an appointment. You don't change that for anything. Mike, you started part-time for the first two years. If there was a new agent listening or someone thinking about getting in the business, would you recommend that they start part-time or do you recommend that they go full-time? It, it depends on the individual. Uh, for me, I already had a job, uh, so it really wouldn't have made sense for me just to abandon that job and try to work real estate full-time. Uh, but I really think it depends on the individual. In my case, I think I happened to do it the right way. Um, I don't. I can't wish I could say I was genius and did it that way on purpose, but my job and my satisfaction with it kind of led me down that road. But I guess what I would say is that each person would have to evaluate their financial position because real estate is not the type of business where you're going to start working and start earning paychecks the following week or the following month for that matter. So I think it's important that uh, each person evaluate for themselves. The other thing I would say is to either latch on to a mentor or join a team. And I'm not just saying that because I have a team. Frankly, when I meet with people, I tell them teams aren't for everyone. You know, there's pluses and minuses to being on teams. And uh, some people want to grow their own team. And maybe the best way to do that is not to join a team. But frankly, I think that... Uh, there are enough people out there like myself who are willing to share ideas, take a few minutes out of a day to coach a newer agent, even if there's nothing in it for them. Uh, but if you latch on to someone like that, I think it can really help you get started in the right direction. So maybe before making that decision, I think finding that person or people that can help you make those decisions, people who've been through it and have a lot more knowledge than they have, that's truly what I think would be a key is getting that mentor. Mike, do you think that top agent interviews like the one we're doing now with Mastermind Agent are valuable? Oh, I, I love this kind of stuff, Mike. I think I told you when we started, we put on events like this. So one of the things we didn't really cover in the interview last year, we put on what we called the Realtor Night of Champions. Uh, got I actually, even though I'm not the broker, I got uh, three of the local Century 21 brokers together, and we all contributed ideas and put together a venue, and, and we put a panel of uh, six agents up, and we shared ideas. It was just a night of sharing ideas. We had about 250 agents from all brokerages come to that event, and they all just went on and on about how wonderful it was. So the idea of sharing ideas here and sharing knowledge I think even the people that were on the panel who were the ones who were supposed to be the contributors, they walked away with some bit of information that they used in their own business. So it's always a learning opportunity. You know, even as I sit here with you today talking about my business, I'm thinking about things and the questions you've asked me have made me think about my business in a different way. And so I'm jotting down ideas here from our conversation. Top producers are always hungry for more information, aren't they? Yep. You got it. Always sponges. Well, Mike, I've come to the end of my questions for today. Do you have any parting thoughts for the listeners? Oh, gosh. Uh, I think we covered everything pretty thoroughly. But uh, since the last thing you mentioned was that seeking of knowledge, I think that that is huge. Uh, you know, I, when I do my continuing education, for example, I think a lot of agents look at it like a chore. 
And I look at it exactly the opposite way. I've usually completed my 30 hours a year before I need them. And that's because when I see classes, when I see speakers or have an opportunity to go to an event like the Ohio Association of Realtors event where I got to hear Tom Ferry talk, I was just blown away by that guy. And when you have these opportunities to learn something new about your business, you got to take them. You know, don't look at it like a chore. Don't think of it as, oh, that's two hours out of my day that I could be sending emails or calling clients. You've got to take time out of your business to work on your business, not in it. And I know that sounds cliche too, but I think it's hugely important. And agents who don't take that time to learn new ideas, hear new thoughts, are really missing the boat. Well, Mike, you're willing to learn new ideas, take action to implement them, test different approaches, and maximize the results. You're leveraging your listings to gain buyer leads with your use of live action video, house tours, Facebook posts, and targeted boosting. You receive referrals through networking and your giver's gain philosophy. You've built a flexible team based on low overhead and high volume and the ability to successfully employ both full-time and part-time realtors on your team. I believe you'll master the team structure and achieve your goal of the seventh level. Thank you for sharing and being our top agent of the month. And join us next call when we talk to an agent who never accepted failure as an option. Find out who she is on the next success call. If you like the show and want to know when the next one's coming out, click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, give the show a five-star review and write a quick comment. I read them all, and it motivates me to keep going and share the top agent success stories with you. Thanks. If you're looking for more ways to generate leads, check out our sponsor, RealGTV, real estate agent lead generation television and their giant database library of video trainings where top agents reveal, demonstrate, and discuss their best lead generation methods. Visit RealGTV, R-E-A-L-G dot TV. If you're low on funds or just want to get the maximum leverage, check out my masterclass webinar titled Top 5 Free Lead Sources for Real Estate Agents. Learn more at FreeLeadTime.com. That's FreeLeadTime.com. Oh, and if you have a real estate friend who needs some inspiration, tell them about the Success Calls podcast. And don't you forget to subscribe right now to hear all the great top agent ideas. Keep moving forward. You've been listening to Success Calls on the Mastermind Agent Network, where top real estate agents from across North America reveal their success secrets, strategies, and systems in up-close and personal interviews. You can find all the calls at www.mastermindagent.com.